0: Thank you, choir. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1, and uh, hold your spot there. Romans, chapter 1, we're going we're gonna to get there in just a, just a few moments. And uh, as Adam mentioned earlier, we just wrapped up a series Last, uh, last Sunday uh, called Hero, and we were in that since um, really since Easter Sunday, looking at the premise of how God is the hero of all of the victory stories we read of in Scripture, how he desires to be the hero of your story too, by the way, right? He's not sitting back watching your story unfold. He wants to be invited in. He's orchestrating the, the details of it, and uh, he longs to be the hero of your story, and then use you as well to demonstrate himself as hero in the lives of other people. And so we wrapped that up last Sunday, and today we're looking at a message that um, comes right out of Romans chapter 1. Standalone, it's not part of a series, but I'll be willing to say that this message undergirds every other message that I'll ever preach. Uh, it's that important of a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 1. So uh, how many of you, just a quick show of hands, are on social media in some form or fashion, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, what have you? All right, pretty much most every hand in here, as would be expected. Um, if, if, you're, if you've been on social media much at all, you've realized that people are really comfortable uh, sharing their true selves and their opinions. In fact, it's one of, the, one of the good things about social media is you never have to wonder where a person stands, right? They are always willing to share where they stand and where their opinion lies and Uh, And kind of where they fall down on certain topics and you get to see people for who they are really through social media. That's one of the good things. One of the bad things about social media is you get to see people for who they are and they share their opinions and they share their perspective and they share their ideas about different things and that's not always necessarily a good thing. If you look at social media, if you look at, at, at the news, if you check out the, whether it's on your phone, you know the, the, the news of the day, or whether you're turning on the nightly news, kind of old school fashion, what you've realized is our world has a lot of issues. And it seems as though for me to even make a statement like that, most people would say, well, that's probably a politically charged statement to some degree but it's not. I think we all understand it doesn't matter what side of the fence you fall down on politically. It doesn't matter what side of the fence you fall down on in any area of life. It seems as though this world has a lot of issues, and our own country has a lot of issues as well. You've got people that are marginalized. You've got people who are pushed to the fringes. You've got groups that are clamoring for attention. You've got different things that are occurring in our culture and in our society that the first five minutes of any newscast or any news feed, you begin to see nothing but bad news, uh, followed by bad news, followed by more bad news. And it seems as though that's where our culture is. And if you were to ask people, what is the greatest need? I mean, it just a random sample of people. If you were to go out and around in your workplace, in your neighborhood, down on River Street, wherever you want to go, if you were to ask people, what is the greatest need of man? I believe that most of those answers would be tainted by the person's experience in life. For example, if you were to ask a person in some part of the globe who hasn't had a meal in weeks, what is man's greatest need? They would probably say a resolution to global hunger. Right? Their answer to man's greatest need is gonna be tainted by their experience. If you were to ask a person who is marginalized, if you were to ask a person who is dealing, let's say, with, uh, with loneliness, for example, what is man's greatest need, they're probably going to say something along the lines of companionship. If you were to ask a person who is impoverished, who is in the, 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 the less wealthy area of, uh, of the globe, or even the most impoverished, let's just go there, the most impoverished part of our world, if you were to ask them, what is the greatest need of man, they're probably going to say some level of provision, or maybe some would even say wealth. It seems as though our answer to that question is going to be tainted to some degree by our experience if you were to ask a person who has been uh, who has been abused they're going to say the man, the greatest need of man is unconditional love and the list goes on and on and on but here's the thing if you could somehow peel back for just 5 seconds if you could peel back eternity and literally in reality not just read about it in the book right but if you could peel back eternity and for just 5 seconds if you could see what scripture defines as heaven in all of its glory if If you can see that, peel it back and take a look into it and see it for what it's like for just five seconds, and at the same time, if you could take another five seconds and peel back eternity as it relates to all of the horrors of hell what Scripture says about it, plus what it doesn't say. If you could just peel back eternity and literally take a look into the glories of heaven, the horrors of hell, I believe it would be across the board, regardless of what nation we were raised in, regardless of where we fall down religiously, for the Buddhist, for the Hindu, for the Christian, for everyone, rich and poor, young and old, if we could peel back eternity and see all of what it looks like, our answer would be, what is man's greatest need, we would say unequivocally. The gospel. That would be the answer. Based on what we see in forever, the answer would be the message of the gospel, right? So, what is the gospel exactly? Well, the gospel is actually a proclamation. In the New Testament, when the word gospel is used, it's used over 90 times in the New Testament. When you see that word gospel in the New Testament, it's the translation of a Greek word, evangelion, which means good news and when you understand the the scope of the gospel Paul really kind of hit it on the head in 1st Corinthians 15 hold your spot in Romans 1 take a look at the slide here 1st Corinthians chapter 15 Paul is Is laying out for us the simple elements of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, right? This is is the most important thing. Paul says, I'm not about to give you a message about world hunger. I'm not about to give you a message about any other topic in life. I'm going to give you what is most important. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul, said, Paul would say, this is the gospel, right? This is the message of the gospel, that God himself chose to come down, Pre-existent God, eternal God, without beginning, without end, right? When he came down that first time uh, uh, that we read of in scripture in Luke chapter two, when, when he came, we celebrated at Christmas, that wasn't God beginning. That wasn't Jesus's beginning. He's always existed. He's God. That's just when he made his entrance into this wor- world as we know it. Right? It was Jesus chose to come down into this world, die on a cross, Right, as Paul recognizes, as he mentions there, that he died specifically for our sins, your sins and my sins. And then three days later, he was risen again from the dead. Paul would say that is the message, that is the simple message of the gospel. That, that, this, this is how the gospel is ultimately defined. And again, it's that New Testament or that Greek word evangelion that translates the New Testament as good news. Well, why is it good news? Well, it's good news because God came to dwell among us. It's good news because He came when we needed Him. It's good news because we needed a rescuer. it's only good news if there is also the existence of bad news. This is a deep thought. Understand, it's uh, it's 11.05 on a weekend. I I get that, right? This is a deep thought. We're not even noon yet, but just kind of follow me here. You cannot have good news without the presence of bad news. The only reason news is good is because there is also news that is bad. Are you with me so far? All right, deep, deep thought. We need theme music for that deep thought, I guess. That's a deep thought. And the reason the gospel is such good news, the reason why the Bible over 90 times uses this Greek word to describe it as good news, that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose, is because of the bad news that is also in existence. That you and I, are God's, as God's creation, are separated from God without a relationship with Christ. That the weight of our sin rests over us. And this is not a popular statement and the world will dismiss this as being judgmental, but there is only one word to describe us, right? Starting on the platform, extending to the back row and everybody watching online, that if we do not have a relationship with God, the only right term to describe us is sinner. I mean, that's the only right term. Politically incorrect, I totally get it, right? But accurate theologically, because if we do not have a relationship with God, the weight of our sin hangs over us, and we have no hope in this world aside from the person of Jesus. That's why the message of the gospel is called good news. It is good news because we need this message. It is the encapsulation, right, of everything this world needs, of what every single person who dots the landscape of this globe in history has ever needed. The most important thing has been this message of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 9. Paul captures it here in this passage. He says, by grace, you've been saved through faith. Here's what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, by grace, you've been saved because you've been in church ever since you were a kid. He doesn't say by grace you've been saved because you've done a lot of good deeds that outweigh your bad deeds. Paul doesn't say, by grace you've been saved because you teach Sunday school or because you preach a sermon or because you, 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 your grandparents were Christians. Paul doesn't say that we're saved for any of that. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We didn't work this up, right? It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Paul would say that the message of the gospel is good news because without Jesus, it is such bad news. It is a horrible story without Christ. And in the midst of that, what God does is he sends us this message of the gospel lived out in real time through his own son, God himself, who came, who died, and who rose. It's the message of the gospel. And the Bible displays it in seed form in the Old Testament looking towards the Messiah in the New Testament, you see the seed give birth, so to speak, so, so to speak, and this beautiful flower unfolds of, of what salvation looks like, only available through the person of Jesus. Well, the greatest missionary in the New Testament that would proclaim this message of the gospel would be a man named Paul. We talked about Paul a little bit last week as we finished out the hero series, the persecutions that he went through, the beatings, being stoned, shipwrecked, ultimately um, martyred for the sake of the message of the gospel. That was Paul's experience. Well, as Paul would travel around the world, uh, well, that region of the world, three separate missionary journeys, he would share the message of the gospel, and he would plant churches And Paul would do this because he understood the primacy of the gospel, that it was of most importance. Well, there was a city that he longed to go to, and it was the city of Rome. Rome, in the middle of the first century, around the time Paul would write this, was the hub of the world, right? It's like if you've ever flown. If you've ever flown to anywhere, if you're going to L.A., if you're going to D.C., if you're going to Bismarck or wherever you're going to go, it seems as though most every flight is going to go right through Hartsfield International Airport in Atlanta, Georgia, right? All roads run through that airport. That's kind of the way it was in the first century. All roads led to Rome. Everything went to Rome. Paul's desire was to get to Rome. It was the hub of the world in his day. He lived as a Jew, he lived as a, uh, uh, ultimately, as a Roman citizen under the authority of the Roman Empire. He had to live his life in subjection to the authorities of the Roman Empire. That, that was their influence. They ran the world in the first century. Paul wanted to go there. He wanted to make it there. He would at the end of his life as a prisoner under terms that were different than he had expected or desired, but he would ultimately make it to Rome. But there were two overarching reasons of why he wanted to get there so badly. We begin to see them in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Move down with me here to verse 11. Let's just start here. Two reasons Paul really wanted to get to Rome so badly. This is setting it up for the verses we're going to focus on in just a moment. Chapter 1, verse 11, he says to the Roman believers, he says, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Verse 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul had not planted this church in Rome. In fact, most believe the church started in Rome As a result of Christians or or, or, um, Roman folks who called Rome home, right, in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached the message at Pentecost, right, there were Jews that had come from all over the world, and among them would have been Jews from the city of Rome. They came to uh, Jerusalem. Peter would preach the message there on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, you can check it out on your own, and there were 3,000 that trusted Jesus that day. They were baptized that very day. Most theologians believe that there were Jews, obviously, from Rome. It names a ton of different areas around the world where Jews were in that city, where they were from. Most would believe that there were some from Rome, trusted Jesus that day when Peter preached, and they took a new life and the gospel back to Rome, actually shared it, which is the way it works. That's for all of us. And a church would be born. Paul did not plant that church. Paul is now writing a letter to the believers who are part of that church. He says in verse 11 12, I want to come to you because I want to strengthen the church. I want to encourage you, and I want you to encourage me. But look down at verse 14. He says, I am under obligation, verse 14, both to Greeks and to barbarians, or to the cultured and the uncultured. He said, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, I want to come to you because I want to strengthen the church. I want to pour into you. You pour into me. But man, I want to come to you because I want to preach the gospel to you. Why? Because it is your greatest need. And then in verse 16, Paul kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit, and he shares his own opinion of what the gospel means. And he also shares his own personal thought inspired by God Of the gospel's effect. Look at what he says in verse 16. This is where we're going to focus today. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Principle number one, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's the terminology that Paul actually uses there. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, he would say, ultimately unto salvation, for salvation. He he, he uses this word power, he uses this Greek word called dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite, and when Paul is talking about a, a, an example, an illustration of the gospel, this would have made. Uh, real sense to the people who heard him that day speaking or writing in the Greek language, they would have understood what this word meant. He wasn't using an arbitrary word; he used a word of uh, of power to describe what the gospel is—a word that we would translate as dynamite. He says that the gospel is the very power of God for salvation. What does he mean by that? It, it means that the gospel is what has the 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 potential; it has the power to take a person who was dead in their sin and translate them into life. To take a person from the ditch and place them in the high places of their calling in Christ Jesus. To take a person who's in darkness and move them into light. To take a person from guilt and move them to a place of peace. To take a person from from a place of lostness and bring them to a place of salvation where they're found. Paul says that's the power of the gospel. There is no other message in this world, nothing you're going to see on TV, nothing you're going to read on social media, there is no other message in existence for the Romans 2,000 years ago or for us today. There is no other message in existence that has the power that the the gospel carries. This transformative power, this, this ability to literally change a person, there are three huge questions that we have to deal with in our lives over the scope of the life that God gives us. Three enormous questions that we have to deal with. Question number one, where did I come from? Question number two, why am I here? Question number three, where am I going when I die? All three of those questions the Bible answers It answers it clearly, answers those questions unequivocally, right, with with no lack of clarity. Where did I come from? The Bible makes it clear, Genesis one and two, you came from God. You, You were an expression of the creative hand of God yes we are marred by the effects of our sin i mean clearly but you bear the image of god genesis one and two makes clear god created you genesis tells us you bear his image you were not an accident about a week ago or so um april our youngest 11 she's like super creative one in our in our family and um I asked her, I said, she makes bracelets and stuff, and I said, would you make me a bracelet? And she didn't even charge me, that was good. <clears throat> Free gift. <laughs> and I said, would you make me a gr- bracelet? And she said, what do you want to look? Well, I want summer, like nice and summery. And, uh, and so she made me this. She made me this little bracelet. She got some good color in there. And then she added a little, little, separate, a little separate moment, uh, or a little separate uh, expression that says best dad. All right, oh, that's good. Now Drew didn't make me one, but April <laughs> made me one. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the thing. This, this bracelet did not materialize out of nothing, right? I mean, it, it's not as though um, nothing created something, you know. And, and then all of a sudden I walk in on the kitchen counter the next morning, boom, there's a bracelet there that specifically identifies me as the best dad. All you other dads in here, sorry. But, you know... <laughs> No, no, th- this, this little work of art expresses, expresses a creator. Someone made this. It didn't come by chance. There weren't beads laying all over our house in five different rooms. And then somehow I heard this loud noise and I walked into the kitchen and there's this bracelet that says best dad. The letters were all in order, tied up nice, and it happens to fit. No, it didn't work that way. Someone, will call her a creator, created this as a creation. And listen, you are not just a product of some cells that began to form billions and billions of years ago that somehow, as a result of, of some explosion that occurred, that uh, apparently somehow nothing created something that turned out to be you. That is not the way it works. You came from your Creator. Creator. Question number one, where did I come from? You came from the hand of your creator. Question number two, why am I here? We have to do business with this, with these kinds of things. Well, well listen, it makes sense, right, that if there's a creator who created us as his creation, right, I think we could ask a kindergartner, what then is the purpose of the creation? Well, it's to fulfill the purpose for which it was made right? This is a bracelet. I'm not going to go home and cook with this later on for lunch. Like, man, I'm starving. Where's that bracelet? I got to whip up something through. No, it's not made for that. I wear it. It's what it's designed for. I've got a watch on. Uh, I lost my watch. I mean, my watch quit working. I was out of town. I was in Indianapolis. I was going to try to fix it. It wouldn't work. I trashed it, threw it into the can. And then uh, I ordered another one a few days ago, went out of town again, came home. Boom. There's an Amazon watch waiting for me, right? How good is that? They didn't send a letter, by the way, that said, "Hey, there was this explosion in the Amazon warehouse, and your watch came out. Enjoy," you know. No, somebody made it, right? It's Evidence of a creator. Evidence of a creator. Evidence of a creator. I mean, and this watch has a purpose, right? When I wear it and look at the time, and then ignore it because I'm preaching, it's fulfilling the purpose, right? (laughs) It's fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. You were designed by your creator. You bear the image of God. Why are you here? It's to live your life in fulfillment of the purpose for which he made you. That's to give him as creator glory. You don't just work a job, man. You, you do that to the glory of God. That's why Paul says in Colossians, do everything, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a teacher or whether you're a coach or whether you're a physician or whatever you do. We do that because we're created by him, given those gifts and skills and talents. We do that to his glory. Where did you come from? You came from your creator. Why are you here? You're here to live life to his glory. Where are you going with your, when you die? That has everything to do with the gospel. Everything. Every single thing. Paul says, in the midst of our bad news, that all have sinned, that all have fallen short, that the wrath of God weighs over us as unforgiven parts of God's creation. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God, here's the good news, demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners with nothing to bring to the table, no good deed to wash away our sin, he says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the gospel. Paul says it has the power, it's the power of God for salvation, the ability to change and totally transform your entire life as well as your standing before God. Principle number two we find in this verse, in verse 16, is not only is the gospel uh, ultimately the power of God for salvation, but it's also enough for anyone. Look at the end of verse 16, the end of verse 16. He says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says it's the power of God for salvation. It's enough for anyone. He says to everyone, he says. He doesn't disqualify anyone. He even, he even says to the Jew first, also to the Greek. He kind of covers everybody. He says the gospel is enough. He says that it doesn't matter if, if you have a past that you hope no one else ever finds about. The gospel is enough to deal with that. To the addict, to the, to, the, to the person in the deepest ditch, to the person with the greatest amount of regret, to the CEO, to the person with the corner office, to the most accomplished, and everyone in between, he says the gospel is enough right? There's nothing we have to add to it. We don't try to add our own good deeds. We don't try to put our little twist. It's not as though some cult groups would believe that, yeah, Jesus is enough to get you to first base, but you've got to do this and this and this and this to get to second, third, and ultimately home to where God wants you to be. No, no, no. Jesus is enough. He circles the bases for you, Amen. right? That's the way it works. fellow named J.D. Greer, some of you may be familiar with him, pastor in the Raleigh-Durham area, um, <clears throat> Author, done all kind of stuff to help advance the gospel. Um, he, we, we as a staff, I think, a number of years ago, went through uh, some of his material, and he has a book titled "Gospel: Recovering the Power That Made Christianity Revolutionary." Be- before, um, before J. J. D. Greer was uh, a pastor, he was a missionary. In fact, I remember he and I went to the same. Um, the same seminary we were there partly at the same time he was in a different program than I was I didn't know him he didn't know me but I remember seeing him around and that kind of stuff but he part of that time that I was there was when he was living out what I'm about to read he was a missionary for two years um, in an undisclosed Islamic country and um, serving as a missionary and he, he tells this story in his book titled Gospel I just want to take a moment to read it. He says, One night while I was living in an Islamic country, I received a phone call from a man I had never met named Mahmoud. Mahmoud explained to me that he had a very important dream, and he believed that I was supposed to help him interpret it. In his dream, he had wandered aimlessly in an endless field. This field, he told me, seemed to him to symbolize his life. He felt alone, without purpose, true companionship or direction, and after walking for what seemed like days, he heard a voice behind him call his name. There he saw a man who, in his words, quote, was dressed in shining white clothing. I could not see, I could not look on his face because it shone like the sun, end quote. This heavenly man reached into the sash of his robe, pulled out a copy of the gospel, and tried to place it on Mahmoud's hands. This, the man said to Mahmoud, calling him by name, will get you out of this field. Mahmud refused. Remember, this is his dream. Mahmud was a faithful Muslim and he had no desire to possess Christian literature. He woke up in a cold sweat, heart beating quickly, feeling very afraid. He said he felt as if he had rejected a prophet and did not know what to do. When he fell asleep the second night, he found himself again in the field. Again, the man appeared offering Mahmud another copy of the gospel. And again, Mahmud refused the third night, when Mahmud went to sleep, the man was there waiting on him. This and only this, he said to Mahmud, will get you out of this field. And with trembling hand, Mahmud took the gospel from the man. Mahmud then said to me, JD says, He said to me, My friend tells me that you're an expert in the gospel. Can you interpret my dream for me? <laughs> he said, No joke, that's what he said. J.D. Greer says, now, I was raised in a very traditional Baptist home, and dreams or visions were not part of our standard religious repertoire. So I said, Mahmoud, I don't believe in visions and dreams. Then he goes on and says, not really. I looked at him and said, brother, you are so in luck. Dream interpretation just happens to be my spiritual gift. And he says, for the next two hours, I explained the gospel to him. Though he still had questions, he didn't really doubt the answers I was giving him. After all, he'd been instructed by a divine messenger to listen and when I explained to him how Jesus had taken his sin on the cross, he said with tears streaming down his face, Allah, the creator God, dying in my place, can this be true? It was obvious he'd believed, so I asked him if he would like to place his faith in Jesus. And when he said yes, I asked him if he knew what such commitment might cost him. Mahmoud, I said, you might lose your job, you might get kicked out of your family, this commitment to Christ might even cost you your life, and I'll never forget what he said next. He smiled and said, of course I know all that. That's why it took me over a month to come talk with you because I knew that if I became a follower of Jesus, it might cost me everything. But if Jesus Christ is God and God gave himself like that for me on the cross, I will go anywhere with him. If I lose my job, my family, or my life, it's okay. I'd go with Jesus anywhere. The gospel is enough for anyone the power of God for salvation. The gospel is enough for anyone, including you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how you were raised, no matter about that deep, dark secret back in the closet somewhere, the gospel is enough for anyone. But there's an important part of this verse that I have not yet focused on that I want to close with. Still in verse 16, and this third truth is this, that the gospel's terms are already determined by God. The gospel's terms are already determined by God. Paul writes in verse 16 again, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's available for everyone, Jew, Gentile, it's available for everyone. But Paul says specifically, To everyone who believes. See, we don't have the right and we don't have the latitude. To decide how we're going to come to God, right? We come to God on His terms or we don't come to Him at all. It, it, it's like if I break a law and let's say I commit a crime. I don't break a law. Let's say I commit a crime and I'm being brought before the court and the state has pressed charges against me. And let's say the state determines after looking at the evidence that I have indeed uh, uh, broken the law, I have committed a crime, and I am then convicted, right? I don't have the latitude and I don't have the right and I don't have the freedom nor the ability to step up now then to the state and dictate how I should be treated. <laughs> That's the state's call. They are the offended. That's not my call. I'm the offender. We don't have the privilege or the latitude or the right or the freedom as sinners to step into the presence of God and then dictate to him how we're going to come to him on our terms. He determines that. And what God says here in verse 16 is not come to me through doing better, not come to me through trying harder, not come to me by being a churchgoer, not come to me by doing uh, uh, humanitarian uh, uh, efforts around the world. God doesn't say any of that. He says, you come to me in one way. He says that the gospel is to everyone specifically who believes. That's a Greek word, pastuo, which doesn't mean just intellectual assent, like, oh yeah, okay, I believe in Jesus, great, good to go, all bases covered. It doesn't mean that. Pastuo, believe, means to trust in, it means to rely. Upon. That's what that word belief means. It means to come to the place to where we believe so readily that we place our trust there. That's what that belief means. And Paul says the gospel that has the power to meet you where you are, no matter the highest mountain, no matter the deepest gutter, that gospel that has the power to move you from death to life, from dark to light, from lost to saved, from guilty to forgiven, that gospel that has that same power is available for everyone, but it's only applicable for those who trust in the person of Jesus alone. Beyond that, all bets are off. Oh, but God, I went to church my whole life. These are the terms. Oh, but God, I, I preached. I've been here 20 years. I've been doing ministry longer than that. I mean, come on. If anybody... These are the terms. All right? We turn from sin that's wrecked us for far too long anyway. Let's just be honest. We place our faith as a no-brainer. And the only one who can save us, the person of Jesus who came, died, and rose ultimately for this very purpose, that you would believe that you'd receive, John 1, 12, so that you could then become a child of God. It's an open invitation, right? To every single person in this room, to every single person watching online, to every single person who takes up a spot on this globe, it's an open invitation. And if the question were to be asked, what is the greatest need of man? It's not an answer that deals with food or drink. It's an answer that deals with the gospel. It's to hear, trust in, and respond to the person of Jesus. In repentance, faith and surrender. On a scale of one to a hundred, how sure are you that you've made that decision for yourself, would you say? One to a hundred, zero. Brooks, I know. I'm like this guy in the dream you just read about, right? I know for certain. I ain't never given my life to Jesus. First I ever heard of this. (laughs) Maybe you're saying, I want to, but I know I'm a 0 Others of you, maybe you're somewhere around 50. Well, you know, I live a good life. No, that's closer to zero. (laughs) The only way to be 100 is to say, Brooks, I remember the time. Either as a little kid or as an adult, when I made a decision for myself that I was going to admit my sin to Jesus and invite him to forgive and take over my life. And if you've made that decision and you know it, hey, listen, don't feel bad about being 100% certain you're going to heaven. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the gift he gave you, right? It's grace. Walk in it, enjoy it, live it, fulfill the purpose for which he made you. But if your answer is something less than 100%, man, how long do you want to wander through your life with that little sliver of uncertainty and doubt? That would, and it did at one point in my life, just about put me under Why not nail it down and be sure, starting today, by saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. And today I trust in you to forgive and I invite you to take over. And you know what? He'll do it. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. The most important need that you have in your life is your need for the gospel. For many in this room, you remember the day that you truly gave your life to Jesus and there have been bumps along the way ever since. There have been times when maybe you've wandered, but the evidence of your salvation is that God always drew you back, right? But for some here, you don't have that level of certainty. You, you can't really quite remember. I mean, a, a grandma, a grandpa told you you were saved but you don't remember really ever even making that decision for yourself and and you really don't see change in your life as evidence but today there's a desire that you can't explain not just to get that fire insurance as they say so that you can just say, say a prayer and move on and do life on your terms no you're ready you're ready for something different you're ready for a change you're ready to be sure and you're ready to live to the glory of the God who made you You know where you came from. You know you came from God. You know why you're here. You're you're to live life to his glory. But you haven't been quite sure where you're going when you die. Today you can be. And it comes when you simply pray a little prayer like this from the depth of your heart that says, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. And I know that I've sinned and broken my relationship with God. And today, as an act of my will, the best that I can, I lay down my sin and I walk away and I turn to you, Jesus, and I trust you alone and invite you to forgive me, to wipe the slate clean, to give me a new life and to take over. Help me to live for you from this day forward. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Head still bowed, eyes still closed. God, I thank you for those today who may have prayed that prayer for the very first time. Lord, I thank you for those who prayed it because they just really weren't sure. And I, My goal is not to create doubt, Lord, that doesn't accomplish anything, but something in there wasn't quite certain and today they nailed it down. I remember being there in my own life years and years and years ago. And Lord, there is no price tag that can be hung on what it, what it means to have that assurance that I'm right with God. And Lord, I thank you that today there are some that can now have that assurance. 100% sure, not because they finally lived good enough, but because they've placed their faith in Christ. Lord, help us to take that same message of the gospel that's changed us, help us to take it and to live it out in our lives as we serve other people, help us to take that same gospel and to live by it every day. And when the enemy whispers in our ear, don't you remember who you used to be? And when the enemy tries to bring temptation to lure us away, help us to remember that it's that same message of the gospel that takes effect, that we know who we are in, in Christ. We know that we're part of your family. And Lord, there's no reason to dabble with temptation because it'll only take us away from the greatness of what you have in store for us. So, God, we do thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Paul wasn't ashamed, and so he wrote about it. And thank you that 2,000 years later, we can read about it and live it. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name.